This is Truth, Justice, and Hope, the podcast that explores the modern era of Superman and Superman-related comics. I'm Grant Richter, and this is episode 16. Welcome back to the show. I hope each and every one of you are keeping hope in your heart. This episode, we are going to be talking about Justice League number three, and we're going to be adding a new book to the rotation with Supergirl Rebirth number one, both cover dated August 17th of 2016. But before that, as always, I have some thoughts from here at the Fortress of Solitude. Uh, Before I get into that, uh, just a heads up, during this segment, you may hear some background noise. My daughter is doing an online dance class, so you may hear we don't talk about Bruno being played over and over and over downstairs while I'm recording. Hopefully it won't show up on the recording, but if it does, you're only going to hear it for a couple minutes. Now... I know that last week I dropped some kind of heavy thoughts on you guys, and I'm not going to do that again this week. I know some of you are here for that. Some of you are not. Um, If you're new to the show or if you missed last episode and you want to hear my thoughts or my ire about people who use Superman-themed Twitter accounts to spread far-right extremist propaganda on social media... um, Feel free to go check it out. If that's not your thing, I understand if you need to skip at least that segment. Again, I'm not going to do a super heavy um, thoughts this episode. I actually have like a few different little thoughts that I kind of want to smush all together. Now, those of you that have been listening to me for a while or following me on Twitter for a while know that gatekeepers are a big pet peeve of mine. And every few months... I'll see someone with a superhero account in general, or even worse, a Superman-themed account, spouting some gatekeeper nonsense. And it's usually, usually it's someone who likes a particular iteration of Superman who is bullying people or attempting to bully people who like a different iteration of Superman. And that's not how we do things around here, Um, as some of you probably know. Superman, for me, is not just my favorite comic book character. It's kind of a philosophy. And the truth, justice, and hope, for me, means that you are brave, that you're respectful, that you're truthful, and most importantly, that you're kind. So when I see people who purport to be Superman fans being mean to other people, I get my hackles up, and I'll put out a tweet, and it always starts with, If you call yourself a Superman fan, and then the middle part is, and then if you do this mean thing here, and then it always ends with, then you've missed the point of Superman. And I've put out in the 13 months that I've had this account, almost 14, I've done that maybe four or five times. One of those times was in response to something that Tom Taylor said. 
This was after the news broke that Tom was going to make John Kent bisexual or have him come out as bisexual. And Tom tweeted that he'd been actually getting death threats from people who purport to be Superman fans. And so I retweeted that tweet and I said something along the lines of, if you call yourself a Superman fan and you're sending death threats to a comic book creator for adding diversity to a comic book, then you've missed the point of Superman. And I don't think that tweet got a lot, whole lot of traction. I think Tom liked it, which was nice. Um, and then I moved on and I didn't think about it again. This week, however, or this past week, the new issue of Superman, Son of Kal-El came out and there was a scene and the whole point of this, like these, this issue and the last one is there's this sea, giant sea monster that's come out of the ocean because of the, the coral reef dying, right? And the bad guy of the series, he has his own squad of super-powered goons and he has them attack the monster. And the monster is just trying to go somewhere where it can live. It's, you know, monster because of size and of shape, but it's a very passive being. And, you know, Superman and the, the new Aquaman, uh, Jackson, I forget his last name, because I don't read Aquaman, um, are trying to deal with the monster. And one of the bad guy's goons said, dude, you could just punch through its brain and then this process altogether. And Aquaman says something along the lines of, if you expect Superman to kill an innocent creature, and then Aquaman says, then you've missed the point of Superman. I got a huge thrill when I read that. Now, I'm not saying that Tom said that in a comic book because of something that I say on Twitter often or specifically something that I said in response to something that he said. But I'd like to at least think that I put that bug in his brain, which is pretty neat. Um, <laughs> I know uh, Jason from the Snitcast was talking on his show about how he uh, guest starred on the House of X podcast, and they were talking about a storyline in a Wolverine comic, and there was a a character there that they jokingly named um, uh, Omega Midwife. And they'd said something about that character on on social media. And then the artist who drew that character said, you mean Omega Midwife? So, you know, it, it's neat when, when comic book creators interact with those of us who are just, um, you know, enthusiastic amateurs, which is really fun. And that takes me to my second point that I want to talk about today was we have such an amazing array of comic book creators out there right now, both artists and writers, and of course the inkers and the colorists and everybody else who's in the business. But so many writers and so many artists that are working in the business right now that are on social media have such a, a, a beautifully progressive mindset. And I know that there are garbage people like EVS and his entire comics gate group of cronies. And one of those cronies, unfortunately, is Artie Bear, who I've talked about on the show before. That you know he was a big part of the art team on a during like X Men and X Force in the '90s, and he worked a lot with uh, Fabian Nicieza who has, uh, has a very beautifully progressive mindset. 
and it's, it's disappointing that he's gone over to the dark side. But there's so many people, not just Tom Taylor, but Philip Kennedy Johnson, um, Jen Bartel, um, and I'm, I'm probably going to say her name wrong, Bilquis Ellery, who, uh, who draws uh, Superwoman right now, um, or Supergirl Woman of Tomorrow, excuse me. Um, and so many other creators. I know uh, Gail Simone is constantly on Twitter. Uh, and she is just and so supportive of the LBGTQ community. And everyone else is out there who, who wants everyone to be equal. And for those who are, who are getting the short end of the stick as far as rights and inclusivity and um, and of uh, inclusive not inclusiveness, but uh, you know, when when you can see yourself in a character, and I, I know the word will come to me in, in just a minute. Representation. When you see representation, um, you, know, and, you know it's it's not something I've ever really had to worry about, you know, because I'm a straight white dude, and the comic books are full of straight white dudes. But <laughs> that's a that's the great thing about compassion and empathy is you want other people to be happy too. <laughs> it's not a it's not a, a pie. And if I if you get inclusivity, I get I get less representation. That's not a thing. And it's so great that so many creators out there are so supportive um, of the idea of representation and the idea of inclusivity. And you know, even if you don't love everything they do, it's I think it's important to support them as creators. And uh, you know maybe you don't buy every book they do, but you you, you know, when they say hey my new book's out today great good for you here's a retweet let someone else know about it who may be really into their stuff so that that creator who who shares and I, I hate to use the word agenda because it's been so weaponized of a word but when they they want the same things you do as far as society it helps get their voice out there and I think that's so important. And that brings me to my third point, and this is a huge jump of a tangent, but um, I follow a ton of people who also have predominantly Superman-themed Twitter accounts, because it's a fun community to be, to be a part of, for the most part. You know, again, there's that, like, probably less than 5% who, you know, hate every version of Superman other than the one that they associate with or or who think that Superman should only represent other straight white men or you know that he should be a, a symbol of American jingoistic nationalism but for the most part the Superman community is really cool and but one thing I try to do, and sadly there aren't a lot of accounts like this, but I really love to support other accounts that that are are specific to the other members of the Superman family of the House of L, like Supergirl accounts. Supergirl accounts are so passionate about Supergirl. It's great. And I learn a lot about Supergirl because as you'll hear later in this episode, I don't know a ton about Supergirl. You know, I'm I mostly like the, the Kent family. You know, I like John and Lois and Clark, and that's my main focus. But 
I think Kara, or Kara, depending on how you pronounce her name, is also an extremely important member of the Superman family. Um, I mostly know Matrix, who is really kind of a tangential member. But it's... I, I've learned a lot about Supergirl from these accounts, the things I didn't know before. And honestly, if it wasn't for a Supergirl account that I follow, I probably wouldn't know or may not know about the Tom King Bilquis Ellery series, which I love. I think it's great. I might have I might have seen it tweeted and passed it over, but they have been so supportive and and promotive of the series that I'm like, yeah, okay, I definitely gotta check this out and I'm glad I did. And of course, you know, I I'm not seeing a ton of accounts about John Kent. Mostly the ones that I see are about him as a kid. But you know, if hey, if you have a, a John Kent Twitter account, you know hit me up. You know, I'd love to follow you back. Same if you, Connor Kent, uh, Steele, Lana Lang is Superwoman. If you have a Lois Lane theme, you know, centric Twitter account, send me a friend request or send me a follow. I'll follow you right back. Because, you know, I think supporting the superhero community on social media in general is important because for the most part, we're a very positive and supportive community, but the House of L is where my heart lives, and I love the idea of us all standing together and being a force of good on social media. So that's all the thoughts I have for this episode. So I'm gonna take a short break, and then we'll be right back to talk about some comic books. And again, we are going to be starting our comic book coverage this episode with Justice League number three, which is cover dated August 17th of 2016. It is written by Brian Hitch, penciled by Tony Daniel, inked by Sandu Florea, colored by Tomei Umori, lettered by Richard Starkings and Comic Craft. The main cover is by Daniel and Mori, and the variant cover is by Yannick Paquette and Nathan Fairburn. So let's take a look at those covers. The main cover is the one I like best of the two. It has a kind of sparkling cosmic lightning bolt purple and pink background with Flash, Batman, and Jessica Cruz running, swinging, and flying respectively off to the left side of the page. Aquaman taking up a fighting stance and then Wonder Woman and Simon Bass flying off to the right side of the page with Cyborg taking a fighting stance and Superman flying up toward the middle of the page as a pair of giant kind of purplish gray stone-like hands come up out of the ground towards them and it is pretty cool. The variant cover is of Superman kind of lunge punching toward the reader while he side eyes off to the left side of the page, his right, with an American flag fluttering in the background and a some rubble and a broken street light behind him with some tall buildings behind him. And I do not like this cover. Um, I normally like Paquette's work. Um, maybe it's the inker that's throwing me off on this one. Because I really liked the Paquette cover with Wonder Woman on the, I think it was, it was on the issue either one or two that we covered last time. 
we talked about Justice League, but Superman's face looks really weird. And this almost looks like he's making kissy face lips as he side eyes off to the side. It's, it's just a very strange look. Now, I know it's been a few episodes since we talked about this comic book. So let's do a recap in issues one and two, which we talked about on episode 11 of the show. A mysterious force called the Kindred have begun attacking Earth. Large, organic-looking spacecraft have started physically assaulting various locations while simultaneously releasing millions of drones that attach to the backs of people's necks to control them and somehow also animating recently deceased corpses. Through their living and dead puppets, the Kindred begin siphoning spectrum energy from the Green Lanterns and Speed Force from the Flash. They also attack Wonder Woman and Aquaman, declaring that the two heroes stole magical energy from the Kindred as well. Cyborg determines that the Kindred have planted extinction machines in the Earth's core that are causing massive environmental catastrophes, and only Superman is powerful enough to reach them. Okay, so that gets us caught up to where we are now. So this issue opens um, with uh, thousands of human puppets of the kindred merging together to form a gigantic gestalt being. And it is pink and purple. It is It forms where Wonder Woman fought these Russian invasion forces. And he kind of, he's, he's got kind of a Dr. Manhattan feel going on about him. He's, he's naked. Um, this one doesn't, isn't anatomically correct, though. Uh, he's just a smooth dude down there. Uh, but he's completely bald. Uh, he, is, he does look generally male, but it is um, still somewhat androgynous looking. And he looks pretty cool. He's just sitting there on this big hill, cross-legged, staring off into the middle distance, while lightning crackles all around him in the sky. It's a cool opening shot. Um, let's see. And Wonder Woman attacks him with a thunderbolt. And this is a cool, uh, very cool panel. Um, it's actually a, it might be a double page spread. I don't know. But we see Wonder Woman leaping toward him with this thunderbolt in her hand. I did not know she could do that. I knew, I, I kind of sort of remember from the Wonder Woman movies that she could do that. Um, but I have not been reading Wonder Woman in forever. I keep trying to get into the Rebirth era Wonder Woman, but so much of it involves Steve Trevor, and I just don't like Steve Trevor. Um, honestly, DC made this big deal about Wonder Woman being bisexual. So if you know, you're know you gonna have her be with somebody, have her you know, be romantically involved with a lady. I think that would, that fits the character a lot better in my opinion. I think Wonder Woman's too awesome for just some random dude, but whatever, that's just me. But it's a cool shot of her leaping towards the Kindred right at the Kindred's face, and she smacks him right in the face, and she is releasing all these humans that have bonded together to form the Kindred's body. Now, she doesn't release all of them. She just releases a small handful of them, and they pour out kind of like energy beings, but all that does is, I wouldn't say make the kindred mad, but it gets his attention enough that he stands up. And we get this shot of him standing 
over this line of trees. And now he kind of looks like Captain Universe from Marvel. And those of you that are fans of uh, Jonathan Hickman's run of the Avengers may be familiar with Captain Universe. Um, those of you that like early 90s Spider-Man might know Captain Universe. Um, but he's this kind of cosmic character and he has this kind of dot and like dots white dots connected by zigzaggy lines and uh, now this kindred giant has these things all over its body maybe wonder woman's attack caused some kind of chain reaction or maybe that's what they look like when they get mad but uh dozens of the uh, human dozens of these like human-sized energy beings that are within the kindred reach out and grab wonder woman's leg and they pull her inside the kindred's body uh, from there we see in japan where a green and black giant has formed off of the coast of japan and a red giant has formed in australia and the australian one has the most distinctive looks so far because while the other ones basically just look like a very tall fit bald guy this one has almost a skull-like face, and the way the texture is done on its skin, it almost looks like raw muscle. So that one's really interesting. But uh, Flash and Cyborg are battling these ships that are uh, have been attacking Earth, and they're fighting their drones on the ground. While uh, Jessica Cruz and Simon Baz, they take off into space to try to find out where the ships are coming from. And there's a very cool panel of Cyborg on page eight of the digital copy. And he's facing the reader and he's got his, his feet planted. And his, his waist is kind of twisted. His uh, right arm is thrown back and his left arm is thrust out toward the reader. And he's transformed his hand in some kind of energy cannon. And he's blasting these drones. And then there's red energy crackling out of his cybernetic eye. And the, uh, the C symbol on his chest is glowing red. And there's red electricity crackling all behind him. And it's very cool. And I want to point out for when we get back to this title that the way the drones are done here, they're very indistinct looking. But there is kind of almost a crab or spider-like appearance to this particular set of drones. Because we get a different artist on the next issue, and that artist has a very different take on them. But uh, Batman contacts Cyborg and tells him to meet up at the Kent farm. Now that makes me wonder, and I, I've mentioned this on previous episodes, that I, <laughs> the way that the the main Superman book, the eponymous Superman title, the way Action Comics. And the way this book is done really makes me miss the Triangle era. Um, because even though JLA, which came out in the late 90s, wasn't a part of the Superman books per se, and it wasn't included in the Triangle numbering, uh, Morrison was very careful to take his cues about what he did in JLA off of what was going on in the the books that the characters that were in JLA had solo titles about what was going on in those books. So, for example, 
know, once Superman takes on the blue energy form sometime during the first four issues of JLA, by issue five, J, uh, Superman has the energy form in JLA number five. And there's also things that are going on with Wonder Woman and things that are going on with Green Lantern and Flash and Aquaman and all that. So um, we saw in the first issue of the eponymous Superman title that Wonder Woman and Batman uh, knew where uh, where Superman, where Clark and Lois and John lived. They knew where the farm was. And so, and this is taking place quite a bit after, so I don't know exactly where this fits in and all that timeline. And we'll see when we get to Action Comics. That, that also gets confusing because um, in, the, in issue six of the eponymous Superman title, which we'll get to pretty soon, that's where Superman Clark begins acting publicly as Superman again, but then he also began acting publicly as Superman in Action 957, which is the first Rebirth era action issue. And so the whole thing with Batman and Wonder Woman knowing where Clark and Lois live, it's kind of ambiguous as to what happened when and what came first. But anyway, not a big deal. It's one of those, it's one of those mystery science three to MST3K things. You know, it's, it's, I should really just relax, but it's still, it still has a bug in the back of my brain that just won't go away. But anyway, um, before our cyborg can leave to go to the Kent farm, he detects a signal and knows that signal is going to and from the drones and they're, they're originating and going to an unknown source. Well, as the Green Lanterns leave Earth, they're caught in a wormhole that takes them to this shattered remains of a distant planet. And Jessica says there are millions of life forms on the surface and the planet is surrounded by warships. And this is a pretty great panel that takes up two thirds of page 10 of the digital copy. And when I say shattered, I mean literally shattered. It looks like someone has taken a baseball bat to this, like a gigantic baseball bat to this planet. It is maybe two thirds of a planet left. And there's this little bit on the bottom that's just hanging on by a little bit. And you kind of have a rounded dome towards the top. But the, I mean, this thing is just in pieces and it's barely holding together. But then we see at least three ships surrounding the planet. Uh, and they're all the kinds of ships that were attacking Earth. Um, and so they, the, the lanterns, they determined that the ships are unmanned. There's nobody on them. So they cut loose. And Simon starts blasting the ships while Jessica goes and checks out the surface of the planet. Um, on the Kent farm, we have a really cute uh, scene on the beginning of page 11. And Lois is saying to John, uh, go play. Your dad and I need to talk. It's important. And John says, is it about the quakes? Is dad going to save the world again? And Lois says, maybe go play. <laughs> I love that. It's so simple, but you can tell the hitch probably has kids <laughs> and man, I can relate to that so much. Hey kid, uh, go do something. I need to talk to your mom for a minute. Okay. Can I have a snack? I don't know. Go do something. I need to talk to your mom. Can I watch something that I will talk about it later, dude? 
go play. I need to talk to your mom. Okay. So I just thought the way that was handled was really funny. But um, Lois and Clark, they are having a heart to heart um, because she is upset so that so soon after Clark going back into action as Superman, that he is up against a something that is extremely life threatening. Now, again, this is one of those one of those concerns is like, well, in action comics, he just fought Doomsday again, the literal creature that killed him before. And, you know, they also, he almost died fighting the Eradicator over the main Superman title. So maybe if there was a bit more tight, tightly knitted continuity between the three books, maybe if it had just been worded slightly different, where Lois had said, you know, you've already faced two life-threatening challenges since coming back. You know, another one is is you know, almost more than I can take. But, um, you know, let me see what Clark says. He says, it is dangerous, but if I don't try, that it mean the life of every family on Earth. If I don't do this, you and John will die because... Remember, these, these extinction machines that are in the Earth's core, they are causing earthquakes that could very literally shake the Earth apart. And, um, and Lois says, I know the man I married. The, and let's see. Uh, I know the man I married, the man I love. You wouldn't be him if you didn't do this. So that's great. And then Clark takes off his cape, and there's a really cool panel of the two of them kissing and they're on the farm and the breeze is blowing the, the cape is blowing in the breeze Clark and Lois are in shadow uh, there's clouds billowing behind them there's this tree just behind there's this kind of bucolic scene with the, you know, the trees and the fence and the whole farm thing going on in the background it's very nice and I have to say I like how the rebirth suit looks a lot better without the cape. I don't, I said this before, I don't hate the rebirth suit. I like the classic suit better. With the cape on, the lack of trunks and the lack of blue boots, I'm sorry, the and with the blue boots, without the red boots, makes, in my opinion, makes the suit look a little uneven. And I think the boots and the trunks balance out the cape better. Without the cape, it's a mostly blue suit with just the red and yellow insignia on the chest and then this red belt-like design around the waist and then these two red lines that mark where the tops of the boots are and it works a lot better. And also, (laughs) and I know this, I know I've spent like four episodes going over eight issues of a series where, where Clark ran around flying and doing stuff without the cape, but there's something about Clark in a actual red and blue Superman suit, doing stuff, specifically flying without the cape, that makes me feel this childish sense of vindication. I have to tell the story, it's really dumb. So um, when I was seven years old, so this would have been either late 81, um, yeah, late 81 or early 1982, um, one of the local TV stations where I lived in rural Ohio played uh, Superman the movie. 
what, uh, what I have to assume, maybe the first time, because remember back then in the day, this was before VCRs and rental stores and DVD players and everything were commonplace. And so once a movie was out of the theater, you pretty much had to wait for it to come on network TV. And this was about four years after it was out in the theater. So that would have been about the right time. And I lived, like I said, in a little farm community. And most of the kids that I lived around, they barely knew anything about superheroes. They knew who some of them were. And that was about it. And they knew that Superman was strong and Superman could fly. And for about half the boys in my class who watched this movie on TV that night, that was the first time they'd seen anything with Superman. Now, and the Super Friends was on TV at the time. And, but I guess they didn't. And I found out, this blew my mind. A lot of the kids I went to school with didn't watch cartoons. They didn't do kid things. They did football and they did hunting and they did fishing and that was it. So they, they saw Superman for the first time and in the movie, you don't see him fly until he has his cape on and he only flies with the cape on. So these kids in my class were convinced that Superman's cape is what enabled him to fly. And I argued with them for days. And finally, they all just shot, shouted me down and I said, okay, fine. You know, superheroes don't mean anything to you anyway. So who cares? If you want to believe Superman can fly because he has a cape, Superman can fly because he has a cape. So every time I see Superman in a red and blue suit flying with a cape, I'm like, see, Jeremy, told you so. And it's stupid. I'm a 47-year-old man. <laughs> but the seven-year-old of me from 40 years ago still feels this silly sense of vindication from that. But anyway, uh, once Clark has done saying his goodbyes to Lois, he tells Batman that he is ready to go. Um, <laughs> Cyborg arrives via the boom tube shortly after and tells Clark that all he has to do is travel to the Earth's core and take out the extinction machines. No, that's all. Just, you know, just simply burrow your way down to the earth core you'll be fine actually he doesn't have him burrow his way down to the earth core he's going to boom tube him there um and for those of you that are listening to this who aren't familiar with the rebirth era or the new 52 era this cyborg or maybe if you haven't seen the snyder movies or whatever this cyborg has mother box technology in his body so he can create boom tubes and so he's going to create a boom tube that's going to transport Superman to the Earth's core. But he says once he gets there, he can't boom, boom, that is tricky to say, boom tube him back out. One, because he won't know exactly where Superman is. And two, he can't risk opening a portal that goes from the Earth's core to the surface because it could let all the heat and pressure out, which would be devastating to the Earth's surface. He can just barely... Yeah, boom tubes are one way. He can just barely keep the 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 pressure and the heat from doubling back on through the tube that goes from the surface to the core. So the other way around is out of question. Um, but Batman explains that the machines have been in the core for a they just say a long time, withstanding seventeen thousand atmospheres of pressure and heat like the surface of the sun. Uh, Lois tells Batman that she'll hold him responsible if anything happens to Clark. And then John offers Batman a cookie. 
<laughs> which I think is hilarious. Um, um, <laughs> I have, uh, you know, I, I try to follow a lot of fellow Superman themed accounts on Twitter. And, you know, like I said uh, earlier in the, in the Fortress segment, I, I like to follow as many, you know, Supergirl accounts and, and I don't see too many Steel accounts, but I do those when I can, and Lois accounts and so forth. And there are a few accounts out there that are, that are uh, specific to John Kent. And there's this one account that I follow who, who is specifically John as a kid. And he refers to John as having big gremlin energy. And yeah, that's what I get a lot from John. Uh, with you know, Lois is getting right in Batman's face. And we see a few years later in Tom Taylor's Son of Kal-El series that, that, uh, that Lois is one of the few people that can put Batman in his place. And so she's like right in his face saying, if he dies, I'm holding you responsible. And then as she stomps off, John's like, hey, Batman, want a cookie? Which is really, really funny. But in the next panel, one of the missiles from the alien ships crashes into the Kent farm and releases a swarm of hundreds of drones. Cyborg tells Batman to get Lois and John to safety while he deals with the swarm. And what's interesting about this one, and I assume these are the same kinds of drones that that uh, Flash was fighting, but these drones all look like minimalistic geometric robot bats, which is a really neat effect. And they're all when you see them, they're all chasing Batman at first. Now I've only read one issue past this. I'll be honest, I still don't know exactly what's going on with this story. I'm starting to get a better idea of it. I'm not going to give any spoilers away. I don't know. Maybe the drones become specific to the area where they land and they have a specific target. And they made themselves look like bats because they were originally going after Batman. But what happens is that Cyborg is able to isolate the signal that is going to and from the bats. And he replicates it to lure the bats away, but then all the bats just slam into Cyborg. Like hundreds of these of these bat-like drones are just slamming into and driving Cyborg down to the ground and just burying him in, um, in their mass, which is really neat. So meanwhile, a gray and gold giant forms an Atlantis. And let me read you the quotes on that one because this is pretty neat. So... Uh, it's in Atlantis. It's deep under the ocean. It's talking to Aquaman, and its its body is mostly kind of black and gray, but then it has this gold that mostly emanates from the middle of its chest, and some of it extends along its arms. And inside the gold is you have all these geometric shapes. So we have like a five pointed star, and then around that is maybe. Uh, like a hexagon or or an octagon or something. It's all these kind of overlapping geometric shapes, which is really neat. And it's speaking to Aquaman, and it says, I am made from the words which control the universe. I am made from magic. Stolen magic, stolen words return to us. I hear a song of earth and rock. In all the returns, it is a song I have never heard. And um, let's see. And so... Aquaman has this bag of these things called the Zodiac crystals. I, I am 
not a huge Aquaman fan, so I have not been re I had not been reading his Rebirth title. I don't know if that's something that is prevalent in in Aquaman's own book. I don't know what the Zodiac crystals are, but they're they're powered by magic. And Aquaman's holding the bag, and um, uh, Aquaman's saying that he can hear this song that the Zodiac crystals are singing. And the giant says, with the makers of that song, we could stop the breaking of the world. And then uh, Aquaman all of a sudden says that these Zodiac crystals have gone quiet and they have stopped singing. Uh, let's see. Now, with the giant from Russia, uh, within the giant from Russia, the kindred questioned Wonder Woman. And they say that she isn't kindred, but that she is relative. So let's see. Um, uh, so she's, she's swimming. It looks like she's swimming in this field of stars, but all the stars are kind of pinkish purple. It looks like she's flying through space almost. And there's these word bubbles around her that said, who is it? It does not know. It is not kindred, but it is relative. And just over and over and over, they're saying, who are you? And then the word bubbles keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. It's like she's getting overwhelmed by the words and there's this huge flash of pink and purple light um, all four of the kindred giants gather along the atlantic coast of canada so in addition to the uh, the gold giants magical energy it's the purple giant says it's a uh, let me see how it words it exactly it's basically saying cosmic energy um, but it says the power of the stars shines in me the gray one says the light of the color spectrum flows through me. The red says that speed and motion are mine again. And then the gold one again says the magic is returned. We have awakened. And they're standing. It does a good job of showing how big they are because they're standing in basically a forest. And the tops of the trees maybe come up to the tops of their ankles. So these guys are huge. These are like celestial sized uh, giants. It's a pretty neat panel. And there's this pink and purple lightning that's crackling all around them and it's going from one to the other and going off into the air very cool uh is this a whole splash? yeah that's a whole splash page it's really nice it may be a double page splash i don't know um let's see and then uh our last scene is superman in the earth's core and there's very little detail everything is just fire and red and orange and white and superman saying and we have his internal uh, excuse me internal monologue dialogue boxes and he says gotta get under control heat and pressure like being cooked barely open my eyes need to find these things and then he finds this gigantic um kind of white globe in the core and he slams into it by accident because he can't see anything. It's just, oh, ow, found one. And then he tries his heat vision. He goes, no, stupid, hotter here than I can make it. And the last panel is him just floating next to this giant sphere that is the extinction energy engine saying, I don't know what to do. Now, I liked this issue a whole lot more than the last two when I started uh, when I was getting ready to record this, I was like, man, I, I hope I don't have to do another two-issue run on this. But I'm looking, as I'm speaking, 29 minutes and 44 seconds just on this segment alone. So I think I'm good. 
Um, this was really entertaining. This was really interesting. Obviously, it has much more to do with Superman in it. Uh, a lot of focus seems to be on Clark, which is great. That's not necessarily what I need for a story to be good. But um, it's just, this, is a, this is a fascinating story. And like I said, I don't know exactly what's going on. I'm beginning to think that the Giants, the Kindred, are not are not um, related to the ships and the extinction engine engine. I don't know. I'm, I'm taking a guess. I'm guessing maybe they're almost like opposing forces, but I don't know. I love the art on this. I said uh, before when I did the previous issues of Justice League, I really like Tony Daniels artwork and I like the evolution of his artwork when he was, um, when he was drawing cable back in the mid 90s. He had a good art style, but he was kind of cartoony and it had um, a little bit of an ex exploitative feel to it, especially when it came to characters like Domino. She'd be wearing her purple jumpsuit, but there'd be these huge like peekaboo holes in it, like along her thighs and stuff and along her hips. This looks really good. Everything is stunning. The color work and again, I apologize. Uh, the colors are by Tomeo Mori. Tomeo Mori did a great job. Uh, who, whoever this person is, um, their color work is fantastic, especially on these giants and all these explosions of energy. Everything looks fantastic. I love the scale of it. I love these. I think it's neat when there are... Mm, maybe not bad guys, but antagonistic forces that are so big that they dwarf the heroes, and that's what we have here. Honestly, outside of Superman, the character in this that I'm the most interested in is Cyborg. I've tried to read Cyborg's Reverse series a few times. I'm not a fan of the writing in it. Um, it's very expedition-heavy. It's got kind of a maybe early 80s feel of, hey, I'm telling you what I'm doing while I'm doing it. It's a, they, they have too much of a say, don't show going on with the dialogue in that book. But I'm fascinated by the character. I really, I think this reinterpretation of Cyborg is interesting. And that's honestly my biggest motivation for trying to muscle through the new 52, even though I don't really love that era. I think this reimagining of Cyborg is really cool. Excuse me. Um, again, the the interactions with Clark and Lois is great. It even though I would say if you're reading this this book in a vacuum, if you're not reading the other two Superman books, the the part about her having you know being upset about him going off so soon after after coming back out as Superman feels would be okay again it feels slightly off because it, it it just feels like another day that ends in y for superman it's like oh it's another life-threatening incident and again if it had just been rewarded as you know oh one more thing you're having to go handle that would maybe make it flow a little better but again it's fine it, it's fine um i know i keep bringing it up but it's not that big of a deal um I don't know. And it's just, this is just a really good, fun issue. Uh, and maybe I was a little too hard on those last two issues. Maybe, maybe because 
part of it's my ADHD. I'm always in a hurry to get to the next thing. And then maybe I just rushed through those books too much. I really took my time with this one. I really dissected it. I really tried to break it down in a more structured way to present it to you guys. And it may be that that just made me appreciate it more. I don't know. But yeah, I highly recommend this issue. But that does it for Justice League number three. So I'm going to take a quick ad break and then I will be back to talk about Supergirl Rebirth number one. And we're back. And once again, we are going to be adding another new book to the reading rotation with this episode with Supergirl number one. And it was written by Steve Orlando, penciled by Emanuela Lupacino. It is inked by Ray McCarthy, colored by Michael Atea. And I'm just guessing the pronunciation of that. It is spelled A-T-I-Y-E-H. It is lettered by Steve Wands. The main cover is by Lupacino and Atea. And the variant variant cover is by Adam Hughes. Now, the main cover is um, a very close reflection to Superman Rebirth number one, where it is a close-up of Supergirl flying toward the reader with her uh, left fist outstretched and her eyes glowing with heat vision energy with a cloudy sky in the background. Very good. Really good colors on this one. Um... My understanding of how colors work with covers is that usually the interior colorist usually does not do the colors on the cover. Sometimes it's the inker. I don't know if that's the case or not, but the colors on this are very bold and vibrant. And there's a certain glossiness to them, which is really nice. And I really like how Supergirl's hair looks at his whipping through the wind as she's flying. Very cool. The variant cover by Hughes, I like less. Um, the, the Basically, it's Supergirl kind of just kind of flex posing to the reader with her hands and fists. And um, she's just standing, in, standing on the DC logo with a blank background. That part's fine. But again, the face is a little off on this. Um... It's like she's kind of smiling, but she's also kind of going, <laughs> so it's like it's an uncomfortable smile almost. I'm not a fan. Uh, but, you know, the, the the body structure is nice. The hair is nice. Everything is good. The, the, the detail on the cape and everything is really good. It's just there's something a little wonky about the face. But, I mean, it's, it's, it's an okay cover, but I do like the main cover better. So, what happens in this issue? Now, again, we don't need a recap on this one. Basically, anything that is coming before this is a reflection of the New 52 era. I'm not super familiar with it, which I'm going to reference several times as we go through it. But it opens sometime in the past, after Argo City has escaped the destruction of Krypton, and after Supergirl had been sent to Earth. And an Argo citizen named Laron is being quarantined to the Phantom Zone because he has red kryptonite sickness, and he's being quarantined by Supergirl's father, Zor-El. Laron suffers from dangerous transformations that the Science Council have been unable to cure, and they have banished 
uh, he's being banished by Zor-El for the safety of the community. Now that is really interesting. So he has red kryptonite sickness and um, again, I don't know a ton about the Silver Age, but from watching Super Friends when I was a kid, I know that red kryptonite causes weird transformations. And I know there's a, you know, there's issues of old Superman comics where he gets an ant's head and he gets a lion's head and he gets turned into an old man. I think that was actually the plot of one of the episodes of the Super Friends when I was a kid where red kryptonite gets used on Superman to turn him into an old man and stuff like that. Now, as far as red kryptonite sickness, I wonder if that is something that is considered contagious because it says these transformations are dangerous and we will discover the nature of his transformation very shortly. It's very cool transformation. And I'm wondering if the nature of what he transforms into is the source of the danger, uh, which it probably is. But I also wonder if, because it's not, it's not red kryptonite poisoning, they refer to it as red kryptonite sickness. So I have to wonder if it is contagious. And the first panel on page four, which is the first page of the first actual page of the interior of the digital copy is of a, like, I guess some kind of the science council chamber, maybe in, uh, in Argo city. And we have Zorel and a bunch of other people standing around and they're very in futuristic robes and, uh, Zorel looks pretty neat. It's a long robe. And it's red, and it's got this yellow kind of plating down the middle of it, and a blue kind of V design below the neck, and it's got a banded collar, and it looks really nice. Um, when you look at it from just the shoulders up, because there's a scene where uh, the, the shoulders are blue, and then there's red extensions that stick out from the side of the shoulders, like epaulets. It almost reminds me of Carol Danvers' Captain Marvel costume, which is pretty neat. Now, once you get below that, where it's more predominantly red, not so much, but it is a pretty neat design. And the other, I don't know if they're called Argonians or Argonites or just Argo City people, but they're all standing around and they have similar type things on. I assume they're all supposed to be members of the Science Council because they're all very important looking. But Laron, he is dressed more... I don't want to say commoner, but he looks like he's got like adventurer clothes on. So he's got like these red loose fitting pants in these. It's hard to exact tell exactly what color everything's supposed to be because he's surrounded by this purple phantom zone energy. So I'm sure the coloring of everything's a little bit off, but he's wearing these dark boots that might be purple. They might be black. And he's wearing this long yellow tunic with a wide belt and this kind of purple cape. And it's... The way the cape is like it drapes down over part of his chest as well. And he's wearing like these fingerless, dark colored, maybe purple gloves. And they look pretty neat. And he's got this long red hair and it's tied up in kind of a man bun and this big bushy red beard. So he definitely has kind of an adventurer vibe going on with him. Now, I don't know what his deal is past this issue. I'm hoping we find out more about his backstory but he is pretty neat looking. And I, I do hope he was kind of an adventure. He, he definitely doesn't look like your stereotypical scientist guy. But they show him being transferred into the Phantom Zone. And it's not the typical Phantom Zone projection you see where it's like a vortex of energy or like in the movie where it's that flip-flopping crystal. It's this big, like 
egg of purple energy that's swirling all around him. Then he gets sucked into like this pit that is formed in the floor. And it's pretty neat. It's, it's this pretty cool interpretation of the Phantom Zone. But from there, in the present, at a DEO, and that's Department of Extranormal Activities, ghost site somewhere in the desert, somewhere in the U.S., Supergirl is launched in an experimental phantom drive rocket, which has been reversed engineered from the ship that brought her to Earth. She's been sent toward the sun in an effort to restart her powers. And I don't know the backstory on that. Again, that's a New 52 thing, I have to assume. Maybe it's something that happened off panel between the end of her series and the beginning of this one. Uh, if it is, they do not elaborate on it in the issue. Maybe they will, but as of right now, I do not know how she lost her powers. Now, this operation is being overseen by DEO director Cameron Chase, as well as the foster parents assigned to Supergirl by Chase, and that is Eliza and Jeremiah Danvers. And we get some pretty cool couple pages of all this. Um, Supergirl, they show her inside the rocket. Now, this Supergirl, I think, is supposed to be older than the one uh, from the 2000s where she was, I think, supposed to be, like, biologically 15. She looks a little older here. Now, when we get into the, again, the rebirth number ones are kind of like a zero issue. Once we get into the actual number one, we're going to get a different artist. We're going to have Brian Ching on it. And he does make her look a lot younger. She looks more like a 14 or 15-year-old. Here she looks like she's maybe 18 or 19. And she's got her little headset on, and she's inside the rocket. And it shows the rocket ta uh, taking off. And again, it is a phantom drive. So something about it kind of harnesses the energy of the phantom zone that makes it travel. And we'll see, what does it say? I think it says three quarters of light speed. Let me zoom in here. Uh, a quarter of light speed. So it's only going to take an hour for Supergirl to get to the launch site, to the sun. And the rocket ship has this very sleek, pod-like design. It has purple phantom drive energy swirling out of the back of it. And it is pretty neat. And there is quite a bit of banter going on between Supergirl and Chase and her more or less foster parents. Now, Cameron Chase, um, she has long blonde hair, and she's wearing kind of a black business-type suit with a white button-up shirt under it. She's wearing a duty belt, D-U-T-Y, don't be, don't be eight years old, <laughs> and a long tan overcoat over it. And in almost every panel that shows Chase, she has her hair draped down kind of Veronica Lake style over her uh, right eye. And there are panels that show her eye exposed, so it's not like she's hiding a scar or it's not that she's lost an eye or anything. It's just a fashion choice. And it's pretty rad. I, I got kind of a comic book crush on Chase here. Um, and let's see, Eliza and Jeremiah. Um, this is, I got to admit, this is pretty neat. Um, I don't know exactly what month the Supergirl TV show launched. Um, I want to say, no, it was definitely before this. 
because I don't remember if I watched it as it was coming out or if I watched it on demand later, but I remember watching it in early, uh, either early, like January 2016. No, it would have had to have been at least, but it was it was the er, the first half of 2016. So I'm assuming that the comic is taking its cues from the show, um, which sometimes is a good thing and sometimes is not so good, but I'm okay with it here. And much like on the show, um, the lady they got to play, Eliza, the, the lady who played the Supergirl back in the 80s in the movie, uh, much like that actress, Eliza here has kind of uh, grayish blonde hair and much like uh, what's his terrible face that played Superman on Lois and Clark that turned out to be a garbage person. Um, He is a middle-aged man with black hair and he kind of has like a Han Solo vibe going on here where he's got black pants and a wider gray button-down shirt with a black vest over on it and uh, Eliza, she's got on some some dark gray, some gray cargo pants and a gray short sleeve shirt and a pair of gloves. And they're pretty rad looking like tactical mom and dad. I think they're neat. And uh, Supergirl and Chase are banting while Supergirl's in the ship. And uh, Supergirl's asking how long until I reach the sun. That's when Chase said, your ship's phantom drive approaches a quarter light speed, Supergirl. You'll be there within the hour. And... Uh, and Chase says, a brief respite to relax and deal with every other alien crisis on my plate. That's pretty fun. It's like, here, uh, here's a show you can watch to keep you out of my hair for five minutes so I can go take a shower. <laughs> but yeah, it's definitely some uh, grown-ups, grown-ups uh, uh, dealing with teenagers energy going on here. Um, let's see. Uh, it talks about how everything that uh, Chase and the DEO have tried to restore her powers has failed. That's why they're shooting her into the sun. Um, when Jeremiah walks up to where Chase and Eliza are talking, she mentions how the new uniform looks good on him. And Chase says, years since I let the two of you get married and you still find ways to help me question that decision. So pretty fun with the banter and uh and uh supergirls in the rocket ships like ew i can still hear you and eliza says we're your parents we're not dead uh so pretty and chase even calls out oh god you're bantering already so pretty fun little bit of dialogue here i've i've got to admit i haven't loved everything that orlando's ever written but he has a real talent for dialogue for banter um those of you that have listened to me for a while, that have read my stuff on Twitter for a while, know that sometimes Bantor, as Jason refers to it, can go way over the top. Like with Bendis, there's just too much, and I can't keep track of who's saying what because there's a hundred word bubbles on one panel from two people talking, and that scrapes my nerves raw every time. But Orlando has like a good, a good rhythm, a good pop, a good feel to his banter, which I really appreciate. But as, let's see, uh, as the ship nears the sun, there's a massive phantom radiation spike at the launch site and Laron falls to Earth from what I'm going to call a wormhole because I don't know what else to call it. A big mass of purple swirliness opens up in the sky in the launch site and Laron falls out. Chase immediately turns her gun on him, tells him to hold still. 
Uh, but the presence of a full moon overhead almost instantly triggers Laron's transformation into a massive red werewolf-like creature with feral intelligence. DEO agents open fire on Laron, which drives, who, drives him into a defensive rampage. So, we almost instantly see his skin turn red, his fingernails start growing longer, and then he just bursts out into this, <laughs> I'm going to say, hipster werewolf because he's got he's huge he's got like hulk-like proportions with red skin and then these big talons on his hands and feet and there's fur all around the talons and this in this head that is both kind of lupine and reptilian at the same time um it's like you took a wolf head stripped off the fur gave it a bit of a reptilian tweak without the scales, but then these long wolf-like ears and all this red fur on his head and shoulders, but then he's got like these red tribal tattoos all over his arms, which is why I call him hipster werewolf. But this is rad. I mean, big red Kryptonian werewolf is just the, the kind of thing you can say that makes me love comics. And again, uh, Chase and her agents, immediately opened fire on him. We see that he still has some intelligence because he's still speaking in Kryptonian, but it's kind of a Hulk situation where it is his intelligence limited. He's like, leave Laron alone. And it's doing the thing where it has the greater than, less than brackets around the dialogue to show you that it is another language from what everyone else is speaking. And Supergirl can hear all that's going that's going on through her communicator with uh, uh, with Chase and her foster parents. Uh, Laron tears through the DEO complex. Supergirl's rocket enters the sun, and she emerges moments later with her powers fully restored. Now, um, there's an awesome page or two of her going into the sun. You see the on a series of one, two, three, four panels, you see the back of the rocket ship getting smaller and smaller until it finally disappears into the sun. And the whole time, um, snippets of, 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 I want to say dialogue are coming in through the communicator and it's just everybody panicking. Monsters faster than Supergirl. Breaches popping up all over the site. Nothing slowing it down. Hands like steel. I can't move. Is anyone reading me? Help. No. And then there is a page of Supergirl bursting out of the rocket ship and the sun. Um, this is the one page of this issue I don't like. Um, I like everything about it, much as with the, the variant cover, except for Supergirl's face. It's like she's kind of, she's kind of sort of smiling and she's kind of sorting, kind of sort of looking resolute. Um, but there's also her face looks kind of weirdly blank. So it's weird. It's like she, mm, I, I can't pinpoint what it is I don't like about it. It's like her eyes and her mouth don't quite match up on this one. But everything else looks great. The explosion behind her, she's coming out of the sun and her hair. And I think the S design on Supergirl's costume is pretty neat. And the... The top, it has those um, those lines in it, like in New 52 Superman's 
outfit that indicates this it's almost armor like or it is of a alien material or alien composition um, it has the gold belt and the red mini skirt and boots that come up just over her knees and it looks pretty neat again um, it does look like she's older than what I think she's supposed to be. Um, we will see shortly that she is still supposed to be a high school student. Here she looks like she's about 20. So, but you know, still pretty good looking design. And again, the, the S design on her costume is pretty cool. And I will throw that up on Twitter. But uh, Supergirl hears someone say over the intercom, help, can anyone hear me? And you see her say, I can, as she zooms back toward earth. Um, let's see. Do, 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 do. Sorry, I lost my place. Uh, Laura and tears through the DEO complex. Supergirl's rockets injured. Blah, blah, blah. Fully emerged. Detecting trouble at the base, she rushes back to Earth. At the base, Eliza recognizes the language he's speaking as Kryptonian and is able to just barely hold him at bay using red solar grenades. Until Supergirl bursts in and flies Lauron out of the base, smashing him into the side of a mountain and uh, again we do have several page a couple well not several we have several panels of Laron just smashing his way through the complex that is where we see kind of the more reptilian uh, side of his facial features I will throw that up on uh, Twitter as well there's a cool scene where he has Eliza or perhaps another um, male DEO agent with black hair lifted up by his right hand and he's swatting no so he's holding him up by the left hand and he's swatting bullets out of the air with his right hand which is pretty neat uh, and there's a really cool close-up of him looking back over his shoulder as Supergirl smashes in and uh, Laron's dialogue goes uh, I say you tried to hurt me but here I hurt you you see monster oh you see monster Want monster? I give you monster. But then Supergirl rushes in, grabs them. They smash out of the side of the building. Um, that is where um, Supergirl realizes that Laron is Kryptonian. Um, but because uh, he says, symbol, same as Zorel. And she says back to him in Kryptonian, you speak Kryptonian. Zorel was my father. And Laron says, Kara Zorel, father, ruin my life kill you and that's when she says not today and smashes him into the side of a mountain as supergirl fights to restrain him she's also able to reason with him and calm him down triggering his return to his kryptonian form later as laron recovers in the facility's medical bay supergirl convinces director chase to help find a cure for him so on page 15 we see a very brief fight um and I'm not sure exactly what's supposed to be going on with one of them because we see a lot of red energy um, crackling around the fight. It might be that he's blasting her with something like heat vision, but we only see it coming out of maybe, I think maybe it's just an artistic goof perhaps because it it's coming out of the general area of his eyes. But we're seeing Laron from a side profile. We're seeing him from his right side. And we're only seeing it come out of what would probably be his left eye. So I don't know what's going on with that. Again, I think that's just a oops. 
but um, you know he's blasting her with heat vision. There's rocks flying everywhere. She grabs one of the flaming rocks, throws it at him, kind of knocks him off kilter, and then starts grappling with him. Laron is saying, Zor-El, mistake, poison me, he reason, quarantine, he too stupid, Argo's bedrock, red kryptonite, never see family again. Now that's interesting um, because in Burns' uh, 1986 Man of Steel miniseries, he shows that it wasn't just the explosion of Krypton that irradiated, irradiated its remains and turned it into kryptonite. That kryptonite was actually forming in the planet's core because of shenanigans that's later revealed that was going on during the, you know, what I'm going to loosely call the Clone Wars from long in Krypton's past. But here we're seeing that Argo City's uh, foundation was turning into red kryptonite, so that's pretty neat. But uh, Supergirl says to him, Argo City is gone. You only survived because you were in the Phantom Zone. You're only alive because of the quarantine. And he says, uh, "He this is this is news to Laron. He says, my family, Argo, dead? Still Zor-El takes. And Supergirl says, I'm sorry, but it's more death how you'd honor them. And that is what kind of shocks him out of his rage. And over the next panel, we see him slowly transforming back as Supergirl says, I know your anger, your confusion. I remember it from where I was stranded here, disoriented, a different language, a different world. He says, he stranded you too? And she says, people feared me too at first. This doesn't have to be you. You're not alone. Stop this. Let me help you. My father may have abandoned you, but I never will. And that's really cool. That's got to be one of my favorite things about the Superman family, about the House of L, is that how they are just ready to go the distance for a stranger just because they need help. You know, it, it may require great personal sacrifice on their part. It may require great hardship, but they are going to do everything they can to help someone who needs help. And then we see them back at the DEO base. And I got to say, Laurent looks much better with his hair down. Looks pretty cool. He's got kind of a uh, got kind of a red-haired Jesus vibe going on there. <laughs> Sorry, um, he's a yeah, he plus he's a pretty muscular dude, and he's laying in this kind of healing tank thing. I don't know if it's healing him or if it's just keeping him sedated or something or scanning him. And uh, and uh, Supergirl is saying to Director Chase that everyone in Lauren's life has let him down. He's not even truly Kryptonian anymore. I can see his genes mangled by the red kryptonite poisoning. I promised him we'd cure him. And Director Chase says, we'll try, but I can't say I love having an alien time bomb in my basement. And Supergirl says, he will only be one if we give up on him, which is pretty awesome. Good for Supergirl. I have not read a ton of Supergirl comics. Um, the version of Supergirl I'm most familiar with is Matrix, uh, who I just talked about in the uh, recent Patreon episode of the show where she was introduced. And honestly, that really only runs, my familiarization with her only runs from really about um, the end of Panic in the Sky, which was 91, I think. 
up until maybe 1995, because once her ongoing series with Peter David came out, I stopped reading because I'm not a huge Peter David fan, but I'm going to give it another try. I'm almost back up to 1996 on my reread, and I'm going to give it a try this go around. Um, but I, I got to say, I really like this version of Supergirl. I have not read, read a ton of this series between here and Action Comics number 1000. But after that, when it was tying more directly into the Superman comics, where the, the plot of her series was intertwined with the series of the eponymous Superman series. I read I read all that and I really like it. So I'm really looking forward to digging more into this. So the next morning as the DEO works to clean up and rebuild from Laron's attack, Eliza and Jeremiah give Supergirl give Supergirl a lesson on what it means to be human. And basically they are struggling to clean up and Supergirl's running around and flying around and doing everything at super speed. And uh, she says, do you need any help? And Eliza says, no, not at all. I live to work for hours clearing 20 square feet. And she goes, oh, sarcasm. I could do this in no time, you know. And uh, Eliza says, no doubt about it, Kara. But look, Jeremiah and I, it's our job to help you understand Earth from a human perspective. I know you've tried before on your own, and you've only known us for a few weeks. But before you whisk it all away, just take a moment to feel the time, the sweat, the real cost of an attack like this as we face it together. And then we see Super, Supergirl slow down and help them do things uh, by hand at a human pace. Uh, next, sometime later, at the Blade, the DEO's headquarters in National City... Chase reiterates her arrangement with Supergirl. The next day, Supergirl begins school at National City Technical High under her new cover identity of Kara Danvers, where she can learn more about the human experience between missions for the DEO. And the Blade is a very cool-looking building. It's very Art Deco, and it's got these three kind of prongs that stick out of the top of it and almost come together. It reminds me a little bit of Avengers Tower, uh, from the Bendis era, um, but it's really cool looking. And again, I, because of my lack of familiarity with Supergirl comics in general, I don't know how much of it took place in National City beforehand, but I know that is a the setting of most of the Supergirl series, so that's cool as well. And uh as Supergirl and Chase are talking, Chase is saying, it's time to finalize our agreement. Superman died, referring to the new 52 Superman, which we covered quite a little while ago. Excuse me. You came to us looking to carry on the work of your that your late cousin began, but your powers were gone. I said I'd help you restore them, and I did. Now comes your end of the deal. It's only been a few months since you crashed here on Earth, and, you know, in publication time, it's been like almost five years, but it's only been a few months in comic book time. Uh, they crashed in Siberia out of control, and you've been a liability since then, and thus our deal. You help the DEO do our job, monitor extra normal threats, protect the Earth, and we oversee your activity as Supergirl. And we will have Earth, and we will have work to do. And then um, Chase pulls up a hologram um, of what they have envisioned 
Supergirl's cover identity to look like. And the next on the next page, we see her shortly thereafter at high school in her new in her new identity. Um, I assume she's wearing a wig because in her secret identity she has brown hair, and I think that's a holdover from the old pre-crisis stuff. I don't know, but I think so. Or maybe she uses some kind of alien tech to make it look brown or something. And we see her walking through the hall and she's got on like a pair of like like workout pants and a pair of like gray and pink and green sneakers and a pink top. And she's got glasses and her body language looks very kind of awkward and clumsy. And we see where she has paper spilling out of her folder. <laughs> there's, a, there's a goth girl sitting on a windowsill behind her just giving her the complete mean mug which I think is really funny. <laughs> but uh, Supergirl has some kind of alien DEO something something tech in her locker that enables her to communicate with Chase or maybe she just has an earpiece on. Either that or she's got like a like an electronic fingerprint scanner on her to get in her locker, which is pretty funny. And uh, it says, uh, Chase is saying, Fisherman's District, armed assailants attacking military convoy. And so Supergirl runs into the bathroom and changes into Supergirl and flies out the window. Pretty fun. But then uh, on the last page, in the modern day ruins of Argo City, a caped figure with a robotic hand or gauntlet opens a sarcophagus containing a cybernetic woman and promises to save her. And we see that it is like really rubble. I mean, everything is destroyed. Buildings are falling over. Most of them are crumbling. Um, and then this this guy, he I, is, well, it looks male. I know from, from further reading that it is male. Uh, all we really see of him is his right hand or his hand in a gauntlet. I'm just going to go ahead and say right now, it is in fact a robotic hand. In the sarcophagus, it is very much in the colors of the House of El. It is blue with kind of concentric circles of red and yellow uh, surrounding a, a transparent dome. And then he opens the sarcophagus and all we see of this woman is her from about the shoulders up, but she has grayish white skin and she's covered in green and purple cybertech. And he opens the sarcophagus um, and I will read you his dialogue. He says, my people, I remember your faces, your cries, screaming to Rao above to save you from death as he failed to spare you. But Rao didn't fail you. I did. I cannot save you, but fear not. This time I will do better. And as he says those last words, the woman's right cybernetic eye begins to glow red and that is it everything will be continued as the action continues in supergirl number one which we will get back to, we will get to in a few episodes but this was really fun um i know where they're going with this caped figure i'm not going to say it yet um i will say that where they go with this guy is interesting but given the revelation that there is a very similar character about to be re-revealed in action comics 
in a few months, maybe a year, kind of takes the oomph out of it. But that's all I have to say about that. But this was a really fun episode. I, like I've said, I love Laron. Big red Kryptonian werewolf is just all kinds of fun. I like Supergirl's dynamic between her and the Danverses and Adrian, not Adrian Chase. Adrian Chase is Vigilante, um, Cameron Chase. And, you know, I like their, I like their interaction. I like their banter. Um, I like the parallels here between this series and the Supergirl TV show series. They're going to, going to introduce more parallels as the as the series goes on very quickly because I didn't stay with I didn't stick with this very long. I only stayed up to about maybe issue three or four. But so they're gonna introduce even more parallels very soon. Um but yeah this was good. Um again I'm I'm kind of sorry I didn't stick with this the first time around. And again um that is mostly because I when I started this, I was only maybe a month or two into my Superman fandom, and I just wanted to read about Clark. And there were, um, I just didn't want to bounce between stories about Clark and anything else. I just wanted to do a straight Clark read through of every era. So I'm glad I'm getting to go into it in more detail. I'm glad that talking about it here with you guys makes me slow down and makes me kind of make my ADHD brain heal a bit and pay more attention to the details. So yes, a lot of fun. And that is our comics for this episode. So give me just a moment and I'll be right back to wrap everything up. And that is it for episode 16 of the Truth, Justice, and Hope podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed listening to me talking about these issues as much as I enjoyed talking about them. Once again, the Patreon for the show is up and running. Uh, right now, there are two episodes up on the Patreon. Uh, where I, the first is where I talk about the Superboy, the Pocket Universe Superboy saga from 1987 and the Supergirl saga from 1988. Um, I am going to be working very hard to get two episodes of the Patreon up every month on a staggered schedule. So if you're listening to this show and you're subscribing to the Patreon, you will get an episode of Truth, Justice, and Hope every week. And I hope that is a motivating factor for you if you're not already subscribing to the show. Um, the next thing I'm going to be talking about on the Patreon is Superman in Exile, which uh, if you're listening to Patreon, you know I don't love the two stories that we've done so far. I appreciate them and that they are kind of stepping stones to get to stories that I like better in the in the very late 80s and in the early 90s and exile is one of those stories that i do really like so i hope you will check that out to hear me talk about that um, and you can sign up at patreon.com at truth no patreon.com slash truth justice and hope speaking of ats if you want to follow me on twitter i'm at about superman where i post about superman content a lot um, and sometimes about how much I dislike gatekeepers and how much, um, I don't like 
things on the right of the political spectrum, making things more difficult for everybody else. <laughs> but again, that is it for me for this episode. Next episode, we're going to be talking about Action Comics number 962, which wraps up the whole Superman Doomsday fight. Now, that was cover dated August 24th of 2016. After that, there is a two-week jump in publication, and we get three comics all at once on September 7th. We get Superman number six, Supergirl number one, and Justice League number four. So what I think I'm going to do is I really enjoyed the Supergirl, so I think I'm going to go ahead and talk about Action Comics uh, 962 and Supergirl number one, and then I will save Superman number six and Justice League number four for episode 18. And again, I will be back in two weeks with episode 17. But until then, remember to fight fear at every turn with an open mind and an open heart. Love you.